If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. I think it's fine to read some Bible stories to children, but without the pressure of having to take all those stories literally and factually true. Pete Ends, Season 1, Episode 4. Welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. Today, we're talking with Pete Enns, who happens to be my dad, and he is on for the second time. We had him on Season 1, and now he's on Season 2. So thanks for coming on, Dad. We're super excited to talk with you again. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Esther. Yay. Yeah, we love having you. It's so fun. You made it back. You made it back made it for back. a second round. It was a tough call. You know, Liz, it's sort of like you got baptized twice as an infant and then later because the first one didn't take. So I think that's the same with this. But neither one took. That's the catch there. Neither one took. <laughs> well, let's see how this second episode goes. <laughs> it's like, finally, we got it right. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so fun. Thank you, Pete. You did make the cut. You did make. I know. I'm so happy. The cut to come back on. So <laughs> I know a fun thing you did. And you're just coming off of is your sabbatical. Mm-hmm. So tell yeah. us one thing that you got done. Yes. What did you do, this? Dad? <laughs> what do you have to show for your sabbatical? Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. And then maybe one thing you wish you had yeah. a whole other sabbatical for. In terms of what I got done, part of my goal for the sabbatical was not to think that way. Aww. I got stuff done, but Aww. it was more, it's been actually a very healing and re-figuring out who I am. <laughs> not really from the ground up, but just, I realized how tired I was after the first three or four months when I started taking like four power naps every day, because I'm just exhausted. It was just good for everything just to shut down. And mm-hmm. I had tasks, I had obligations, but I didn't have you know any of the teaching or traveling stuff to go in there. Mm-hmm. That's probably it. The thing that I got done was just taking care of myself a little bit, which mm-hmm. uh, is not always an easy thing to do. I think, I don't know what you guys think. I think for men, it's hard too. I think it's harder for, it's hard for men and women, but I think maybe for different reasons, that's a very blanket statement. I don't mean to make it sound like that, but because it's like so much, you know, Liz, so much of what you do is you're judged by what you do, mm-hmm. right? And you too, Esther. And and I think men are judged by what they do too. So when I tell people, what did you do all day? And I read for two hours. <laughs> I watched one of the Marvel movies for the fifth time. (laughs) I took a nap. Then I walked around the park for an hour, but that's fine. I don't care what people think. Well, I think there's cultural norms and there's social norms and coming out of the generation that you have come out of that you were born into. And then also some of your German heritage roots. I think that all plays into this idea of just needing to 
like you said, show what you've accomplished and show what you've done. And yeah. the definition of that is what's in question. What is actually the definition right. of getting anything done? And I think too, this idea that emotional work is also fatiguing. I think sometimes we forget that. You could be reading for three hours, you could be writing your book for half the day and that's emotionally taxing and we forget that. We're like, oh, we've been sitting all day. So like, we don't need to rest, but that's not the truth. Being your daughter and knowing you <laughs> decently well, I feel like you kind of fall into that trap with yourself where mm -hmm. you're constantly intellectually going, 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 and you forget to rest from that piece of it too. I think that's a really good point. That's probably a lot of what happened this past, it'll be 15 months total. Can you believe that? Wow, that's awesome. I want to do this every year. I'm shocked you didn't get more done in our backyard though. I mean, right. <laughs> 15 months and I mean, there was a lot of things that you could have done in our backyard. I did give you some advice though on the backyard, so. <laughs> Well, I think, Liz, we were going to do this and get together as soon as you had a little bandwidth, too, with all the stuff you've been doing, especially with the musicals and whatnot. Oh, yay for Liz's musicals and Pete's sabbatical. I love the music. I just saying, like, I think Liz doesn't have the time. Liz, I should talk to you since you're here, not in the third person. Are you feeling bad that you didn't do more in my backyard during your sabbatical? I'm feeling bad. I was just kidding. Because you don't have I've to you down again, document Liz. your self-worth by how much you did in our backyard. I think I do, actually. That's Yeah, well, that's the problem. I'm laughing because Pete is an Old Testament scholar, obviously, and sabbatical. I think has its root in the word Sabbath or Shabbat, mm -hmm. which actually means to stop. Am I right? I mean, yeah. you're the Old Testament scholar. Is that correct? Yeah, so to, to I, stop, to rest. To you rest, know, right. Um, I just think it's funny. That was an oxymoron. What thing did you get done? Yeah. During what are you going to do on your Sabbath? Well, on your stopping? <laughs> that's a weird question. Yeah. That has not been actually a dominant thing for me this year. I haven't really felt that guilty. Oh, for not doing stuff. I actually feel guilty for not feeling guilty for doing stuff. <laughs> exactly. If you, if you got me there. So, exactly. but, but even that doesn't last very long. Cause it's like, I was going to write a book anyway. It's going to be either yeah. when I'm teaching or when I'm on sabbatical. And so just the fact that it was on sabbatical just also made it like, I can work on it a couple hours a day, four or five days a week, or sometimes once or twice a week, it's going to mm -hmm. get done. I know it's going to get done and I've got all this time to do it. So it was the least pressure that I felt too, amid all the other things that I usually do. That's so, so great. Yeah. Well, and the other wonderful thing too about being a professor is that you find all of these people to watch the house when you go on vacation. Yes, that's <laughs> and the, the animals. Big perk. It's always that's a new, it's perk. always a new student that's feeding the cat or yeah, who, who doesn't suspect a thing. Doesn't suspect a thing. Yep. I love this. I love this. Okay, the father daughter banter is probably just going to continue, which is great. <laughs> We can't help ourselves. I know. We're just, we're so hilarious. I'm trying to keep up. It's, uh, it's hard. Their, their brains go a million miles an hour. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I'll Brian Regan it and be like, um, can I still stand here? I'm too stupid for this conversation. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about some other stuff. Okay. All right. Today. Thank you for all of this. Thank you for bearing with us, everybody. I know you guys love Pete and you love listening to him and I know you love us. So there's that. But we're going to dive a little bit deeper into how the Bible affects parenting strategies. And Pete, since you're the Old Testament guru, and I would say our collective view of the Old Testament and the God that's portrayed there forms a lot of our faith and probably some of our parenting practices. So looking back, we'll go personal at your own parenting of Liz and her sibs. 
How do you think your view of the Bible and particularly the way it works impact your parenting when your kids were growing up? Mm. To me, that's a complicated question because I think it wasn't the Bible directly. I think it was more how the Bible was filtered through the tradition that we were a part of. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to blame it all on church, but that's the primary place where this is communicated. And I'm trying to recall here, Liz, how often it came up at home. I don't think I was harsh because the God of the Bible, especially the Hebrew Bible, has these moments of wrath. I don't think that contributed directly Mm -hmm. to how I think about very indirectly, maybe deep down embedded in ways I don't even Mm -hmm. realize, Mm -hmm. right? Right. But, But not, I wasn't taking parenting cues from the Bible. I was taking parenting cues from my culture Mm-hmm. where kids mm-hmm. had to turn out a certain way. Mm-hmm. And even that was very subtle. Mm-hmm. How know? much of that do you feel like was the church culture, this idea of authority and control and kind of looking down on? We see a lot now, you're kind of parenting, you're kind of like walking a journey alongside your kids. And I think back when you were parenting and, and you too, Esther, I think yeah. just culturally, just in general, but then also the church culture, it was very much like, you need to get control of these kids. They need to sit in the pew quietly or whatever that might be, right? Expectations that I wouldn't have now for my kids to sit quietly for like an hour anywhere, <laughs> right? But like, that was the norm, like get their shit together. That's your job mm-hmm. as their parent, simmer them down. And so maybe more of that kind of piece of it, dad, not that you necessarily, I mean, I don't think we had pews at our church, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily in that specific way, but some of those undertones, I think. I definitely resonate. I think that's a nice connection too, because a hierarchical approach to parenting, which doesn't mean everybody's equal in a sense. You're still parents, right? You still have responsibility, but it's more what they call like servant leadership, I guess, you know, in churches, it's like you're with them and you're part of a unit, but a hierarchical way of thinking about any sort of social relationship, including a family, you could map that onto a theology of the sovereignty of God. If I had to say anything, I think that was like a dominant view of God in the tradition that, and it really was only one tradition, Liz. I don't want to blast or alienate people listening, but it was neo-Calvinism. It was a conservative iteration of Calvinism. And the primary divine character trait is absolute sovereignty. Mm-hmm. You don't talk much about the vulnerability of God or the mystery mm-hmm. of God. You talk about the sovereignty of God. And that's a very hierarchical way of thinking about the relationship between us and creator of the infinite universe. And that does affect how you think about everything. And if you happen to have a family, it will affect how you think about yeah. the family. Yes. Right. Something clicked with me when you said that, because I think that might be one of those subtle messages. It's not the violence, even though the violence is something that, Liz, I know you were really concerned about that when you were younger. And I knew it was there. I just never really bothered with it. I never tried to put all the pieces together. I more or less just ignored it or other weird stuff that happens in the Bible. That wasn't really it. It was more Mm -hmm. the picture of God that the religious system that we were a part of Mm. directly or indirectly promoted. Mm -hmm. And that's, you get the whole get in line stuff. Don't wander off the beach blanket, color between the lines. This is the way to do it. If you do, God will be, God's full of grace. However, However. (laughs) you got to do all these things, right? So 
I don't think that's a good way to live, let alone be it just a person in community with others, including your spouse or your kids. Yeah, I think even about the doctrine of, and again, I loved what you said, Pete, about how it's not necessarily what's actually in the Bible, but the tradition that's interpreting it for you. And the tradition that I raised my kids in definitely had the whole big original sin get them to behave. We got to quote unquote, beat this out of them because they need to be in control. God is in control of us and he disciplines us and we were sinners that he's trying to behavior manage. And so now I need to behavior manage my kids and make sure they're not sinning. And I wouldn't necessarily have even known that connection at all. It would have been Mm -hmm. more that subtle behind the scene things that I bought into holistically. I believed it completely with my whole heart And then it played out in every area of my life, including my parenting. Well, and how much of that comes from that fear, Esther, that we talk about specifically surrounding health, like wanting to make sure that your kids are saved and they're going to the right place. And as a young parent now, because I'm no longer living out of that own fear in my own life of, whoops, if I misstep, I'm burning forever. You know, I don't parent out of that way either. And I parent less out of that fear. You want to save your kids. You just, you want your kids to experience eternity in heaven. So you'll do whatever you're told that you need to do to get them there, basically. Mm-hmm. I shared a meme on my mom's of Biggs page last week or a couple of weeks ago that said, I just want my kids to be happy, healthy, and whole. And then a person corrected me and said, no, happy, healthy, and holy. And I was like, (laughs) that's like that old mindset of like Mm -hmm. you said, color between the lines, stay on the blanket, make sure you're holy because how could you not be? That's the the end goal. You know, be Mm -hmm. perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, it's like if you're not trying to control eternity for your children, then you're more able to let go of the reins a little bit and let them just experience life. Like not that you're like, here's a blowtorch kid, like good luck at four, but you're allowing them to experience life and you're equipping them to experience life because there's less of that fear factor that you need to be pointing them in this very specific direction. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, you've somehow failed them. So Pete, if you could have a do-over with Liz and her sibs, <laughs> yeah. what do you think based on all your studying and all your learning and all your, let's say, moving away from more that neo-Calvinistic mindset and model, mm-hmm. how do you think your parenting strategies would be different mm-hmm. now? See, the whole neo-Calvinist thing, I was never a very good neo-Calvinist to begin with. <laughs> I was always a little bit on the outside looking in, but again, the point is that it still seeps in Mm -hmm. and it's there. So I think one thing, if I could go back and consciously go back, knowing that I've lived the previous life, but now I get to do it again, because otherwise this won't work. What I'm about to say won't work. I would want to be more conscious. I would want to be more Mm -hmm. aware of the subtle signals that you send children and Mm -hmm. not giving into the temptation to look at them as products that have to turn out a certain way, but Mm -hmm. just letting them be who they are Mm -hmm. with wise parental guidance and things like that. And to think of God, I mean, I know Liz, you've talked about how God is a very abstract concept for Lila, who's now four and a half going on 12, but it's a very (laughs) abstract concept for her. And Jesus is 
more concrete, which I agree with. I think that's the whole point of Jesus is concretize and define God for us, right? Mm. But I guess the whole God thing as not a man in the sky who's up there looking down, but mm. this is the difficult thing because this is really adult language. I don't know how to translate this to kids, but more of a pervasive presence in and through us at all times because existence doesn't even happen without this yeah benevolent being so god is the ground of being i would try to explain that to a four-year-old the ground of our existence without which there is no such thing as existence we can't even talk about anything it's creepy as hell when you think about it i mean i can't even like wrap my own head around it right. as almost 32 year old so to expect a child to understand this idea of divine being i mean it's just of course not yeah i know yeah, that's the so... thing i think that's why we have concrete pictures in the bible the Bible has very concrete pictures of God as a warrior, you know, as a gardener, as a king. God has a body in a lot of places. I mean, mm -hmm. that's just, how do you expect people to think about and perceive this God? Well, Christians, at least, we do have this Jesus guy who shows us things, and one of those things can be like an indignation against injustice. One of those things can be utter vulnerability, mm -hmm. even willing mm -hmm. to suffer humiliation for the greater good, right? So mm -hmm. there are a lot of things to latch onto with that. I would want to be more conscious of what I'm getting across and really avoid like the plague, any sort of shaming mm -hmm. or not good enoughness mm -hmm. or anything that can lead to perfectionism of some sort, which we have problems with anyway, but one, one, place, <laughs> you shouldn't have that. Yeah. one place you shouldn't have that is with the creator. Right. You know? Well, you kind of like touched on this a little bit earlier too, this idea that there might not have been specific things happening, but going to church every single Sunday as a child and having just Joe Schmo, who just happens to go to that church teaching Sunday school. Teach you. I know. Teach, yeah. teach you, right? Like you don't know what is no, happening you don't. there, right? And how things are being worded. And so things that are absorbed, these little tiny sponges of people, right? Things that are absorbed at a young age can be frightening and confusing. Like you just didn't know like as a parent, you just weren't really thinking about it in those right. types of ways. You're like, my kid's going to church. This is I the know. place where you go to be right. safe and loved. And yet these very adult stories are being felt boarded into your children's <laughs> minds. There's questions that then parents are not equipped to answer. And I that's think that's yeah. where some of that come from. And then we have some shame and we have some trauma because of things that were just subtly seeping in. Right, yeah. right. If I can just jump in, because this is, again, triggering for me in a good way. It's, okay, if I had to do it again, I would be interrogating Sunday school teachers. <laughs> and I would ask them basically just, them. <laughs> what do you think of the Exodus? What do you think of creation? What do you think of evolution? And if they don't give me the right answers, in other words, a flexibility and a humility about what we know, what we don't know about God, and a recognition of what people call the hermeneutical problem of Scripture, which is, it's not obvious. This is not an easy thing to understand. The thing is, good luck finding a church that does that, mm -hmm. but they're there. And I think I would be, even if it meant me losing my job, because I'm teaching in a neo-Calvinist institution, if I had to do it again, I would quit that job or get fired from it to be aware enough for my family and what they're learning. And that might mean going to a more 
liturgically minded institution like the Episcopal Church, which I'm a, a part of now. Again, not that any church is perfect, but they don't have those harmful ways of thinking about God that are really rooted not in the Bible, but in particular ways of understanding the Bible, Bible namely right. literalism. And if the Bible says X, you can never, ever debate it or interrogate it. You can't engage it from your point of view. Sovereign God, you just have to believe it mm -hmm. and shape your life around it. Liz, all three of you guys had issues on your own, I think, fairly early on with that model. You just didn't know enough that you're not supposed to say it. Despite that, I think you guys had the wherewithal, the self-knowledge at different times to resist that. And I'm very thankful that you're not struggling in the same way that people might struggle if they're not aware of this in their 40s or 50s or never. And they're yeah. just sort of angry people later on. When my kids were in Sunday school, I even remember something as simple as the only memory verse, the biggest one for the whole year for two-year-olds in Sunday school was do good and share. And even just that, like not even allowing two-year-olds who've developmentally are just trying to have autonomy when they say mine or when they don't want to share, they're just discovering that they're an, an own entity. And the verse is do good and share. Like you are bad. You need to not be yourself and you need to do this because that's what it says. What did you say in the literalist view of the Bible, <laughs> not mm -hmm. taking anything into context, not understanding who wrote it, why it was written, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it was dummied down for these kids to get them to not be themselves, like not actually have autonomy within their own bodies and the stuff around them. And I'm like a psych major. I had like was developmental psych. I remember being a young parent going, oh my gosh, two-year-olds are just trying to be autonomous and learn, but I have do good and share. What am I supposed to do with that? That's more that subtle Sunday school-ish kind of what is really going on and what's behind all of this mindset. Where is it all coming from? I might not interrogate the people. I might interrogate the curriculums or whatever they're doing because most people are just doing whatever they're told to do in church. That's the curriculum. Mm -hmm. I'm not even critically thinking about it. I'm just going to spew all of this out. <laughs> I'd interrogate both. I just rip them all apart. <laughs> One of the main reasons why we left our church, I mean, there was some really great things about our church, but I was like, I can't put my kid in Sunday yes. school. I won't do it. I can't do it. And I can't have her sit in the service, so we just can't do it. I would almost argue, Dad, that most, if not all children, they know. They know this doesn't feel right. This mm. doesn't make sense. It becomes more about what kind of environment they're spending their time in, whether or not they are able to question it or they feel like they can question it. I often hear parents correcting their children and I'm like, oh, but what they said was really good there. Like that was really cool or that was really interesting. Don't ask questions. Or I was like, oh, I, I kind of like that. But we're correcting it out of them. Like what Esther said, sort of taking away that humanity and saying like, oh, you can't do that. I don't care if it's developmentally appropriate. I don't care if you have your own trauma. I don't care if you have a sensory processing disorder. Like, I don't care what it is. Like, you don't do that. We're moving beyond that a little bit as a culture, just in general, and the way that we approach our kids as we're deconstructing parenting a little bit and what that looks like and what our children need. I feel like I'm kind of watching that seep into more like the evangelical community too, not yeah. fully, but I think parents saying like, oh, I kind of want to do this differently with my child. And that starts this journey of deconstructing because they want to parent differently. And then that yeah. kind of shifts 
a lot of things for them. Oddly enough, Liz, the advantage I think that you have Hmm. is that you actually went through that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And something struck me relatively recently, and it's, it's hitting me again now as we talk about this. I did not grow up in the church. Hmm. My European parents, they believed in God and Jesus. I was raised with that basic knowledge, but I didn't go to church on a regular basis until I was like in seventh grade. Hmm. Confirmed Lutheran at the end of two years of going to Wednesday night things where we weren't indoctrinated other than learn some hymns, memorize the Nicene Creed and the Lord's Prayer. It was it was pretty basic. It wasn't like, and here's why the Bible is inerrant and why the sovereign God will throw. I never heard about hell at all at this church. Wow. I remember that, you know? Mm. And I have all these students at Eastern who are youth men major. And I'm not, I don't teach in the youth men program, but they take Bible courses. And I'm like, I'm so glad I didn't have a youth group growing up because this is like a hard thing to do and is a hard thing to weather, I think. Yeah. So, you know, Liz, I think when it comes to my own, I didn't know what was happening at the level of church that you and your siblings were in. Mm-hmm. Part of that is nice. I didn't have those kinds of hangups, but I, I was never really conscious of what's going on there. Yeah. And youth group trips haven't helped us all, you know, and oh, things like God. that. So <laughs> Woo, I have stories. Lord God. We'll get right back to today's podcast episode. But we wanted to give a shout out to a few of our Patreon supporters, Claire Allison, Stephanie Milo, and Kathy Lan Morrell. Thank you so much for your support. For just $3 a month, you can be a part of our private Facebook group and help us keep the lights on at Deconstructing Mamas. Now, back to the episode. The other thing that I think just really cool when we tap into this idea of family in a broader sense is that each new generation, we know more and we do more, right? Or we do better, you know? And so I think looking back at our own family history, and Esther, I don't know how you would say this for you guys too, but, you know, I look at past generations and the things that they did just a little bit better maybe than the mm-hmm. generation before, or not better, but differently, or there was more healing coming through in each generation. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that's true. And, and my hope is that then with my children, there will be more healing for them as well, because I just think that's how it works. Not about like who parented better or who did it the righter way. Mm -hmm. It's that my parents learned things through their parenting journey that affected me for better or for worse that I then was able to take into my own parenting journey for better or for worse and on and on and on and on and on. Because I think that the goal is always healing. That's just always what God is moving us towards. And so in a lot of ways, I'm not going to do that by myself. My dad wasn't going to do that by himself. We all collectively are on this journey of healing through the generations. Last week I was with my youngest daughter and we were in the car talking and she said, something about, you know, she signed up for a counselor. She just is going to counseling now. And I said, oh yeah, I was kind of nervous to talk to you about that. I thought that might be something you wanted to do. And she was like, you guys totally normalized it. We grew up with everybody going to counseling. Mom, you started going to counseling when I was seven or eight or nine. And I thought, wow, I didn't even know I was modeling something good. And I was like, oh, wow. And I think it even in that counseling time where I was seeing things differently was probably what's helped me along my deconstruction journey. Like, oh, boundaries are really important. And this is really important. And that's really important And mental health and whoa. And I didn't even know that I was changing in the process of it all. And my parenting was actually being 
affected for good. And now my own kids like, of course I signed up for a counselor. How big of a deal is that? It's like, oh, well, I thought maybe you would have a hangup. So I love Pete, that you didn't really have hangups. Yeah, I, I didn't grow up in an errantist. Right, an errantist. I just grew up like, well, there's a Bible. I didn't have that. And I see it in a lot of my students who did grow up with that and are looking for language to move past that, but with maybe some tensions at home. Right. Right. And we never had those tensions. Uh, I think ours were more deeply encultured. I don't think we had a litmus test, Liz, for you and your siblings. Like, here are the eight things you must believe. Hmm. Yeah, it's more yeah. just believe in Jesus, please, pretty please, and don't do bad stuff. I think so much of it is what is seeping in. I don't specifically remember some of those things. I think purity culture was really huge in my childhood. That's definitely probably one of the biggest things that was harmful. And that was coming at me from all sides. And you're in youth group, you're getting it. You're a chewed up piece of gum. The biggest thing that I remember about being a child is praying before dinner, right? This sort of thing <laughs> that you just do. Everyone prays before dinner. And when we were homeschooled by my mom, having like devotionals every morning. I remember just thinking as a kid, this is so boring. What is the point of this? Why are we doing this? And I remember the devotional, there was like leaves on it or something, but it's just, what's the point of all of this? It's almost like I could kind of see beyond the bullshit. Like my mom, almost it was like I was even sensing that she was like, all right, well, we got to do devotions because we do devotions with our kids because we're good Christians. But she was sort of like, oh, all right, good devotions. <laughs> so I think there's some of that too, where it's like our kids are seeing this. They're kind of seeing like, okay, let's go through the motions. This is what you do if you're a good Christian. And they're almost like calling us out on it and being like, right. what's the deal, guys? Like, this doesn't sound like anybody's really buying this. So why are we pretending like we do? Because it's got to take. Hopefully it'll take. Right, right. Hopefully it'll seep if in. If we do X, Y, and Z, yeah. But the question is, what is seeping in? What is seeping mm. in? And part of it is the performance dimension yes. of that, right? Yes. And, and I think that's, it's hard though. So, you know, the question then is, and it's not a question I'm really prepared to answer, but so what does it mean to raise kids in Christian faith? And it used to be catechism. That's exactly what churches, you know, Liz, where we were going, that's exactly what they want to do. They want to catechize their kids. What does that mean, Pete? Catechize means having the kids learn what the faith is about. So you learn okay. the doctrines and you learn about the Bible so it's knowledge. It's basically knowledge. So you can then reach a certain point of your age. Even in the Lutheran church I went to, we were confirmed because mm -hmm. we went through a class for two years. And so now you can knowledgeably step into the life of the church. Okay. And I understand that there's something to that. The problem though, is that we don't live in the 14th century or the 17th century. We do live in a different time and you can't just take the template and put it on top of where we are now and expect it to work very well, because I think people change and cultures change. The question is, what do you do? That's a great question. I'm all ears to talk about what do you do? I don't think a model is, my wife and I were just watching the Hillsong documentary, and it's like, oh, oh my goodness gracious, what a cluster, you know what that is. But the thing, you know, a church that is very much just, yeah, whatever, just show up and just be cool, listen to great music, and it's not a big deal. For me, that's not church. That's not what this gospel thing is about. But that's one extreme. The other extreme is very doctrinaire, very force you to be a certain way. And I don't think I ever would have done this, Liz, when you guys were young. I would not have had the awareness. I don't know if 
would be a good thing for us, but the Orthodox Church sees the church as a hospital. Because mm-hmm. you mentioned healing before. Mm-hmm. They see the function of the church as a healing place that worships. So they tend to avoid doctrinal disputes about the nature of the Bible or mm-hmm. debating fine points. They're not really inerrantists, even though some might lean that way as a church, they don't think about the Bible that mm-hmm. way. For them, what it means to get ready, instead of really catechized, it's preparing them to enter the sacred space of worship in the church itself, in the actual mm-hmm. physical place. And for you know the Episcopalians that were around, I see something similar because in Sunday school, they're not doing Bible stories and what do you learn from that? And this is how you're supposed to act. The Bible's a part of it, but they're being educated more, at least when they get to like the late elementary age. It's more the liturgy of the church because that's what we exist to do. We exist to worship in community. That can be a problem too. That can be hangups for people like, oh my goodness, how do you worship? Like cowering? What does that mean? Good question. But it, to me, it seems a more fruitful place to angle your energies because our experiences, I should speak for myself, Liz, I've never felt anything above a, like a four or five in church. There was never a 10 or a nine. And usually it's below a five. I just, I've never felt that because it's very heady. It's very doctrinaire. It's very preaching, preaching, preaching for 45 minutes. No one should preach for 45 minutes unless you're actually gifted for it. But it's about basically either what's wrong with you or what's wrong with everybody else. And we're right. Mm -hmm. Those are the two main themes that seeps into you. And it can really affect how you think about things. Even if intellectually, I'm saying that's nonsense. The attitude can be a part of who you are, and that affects how you approach your kids and all your relationships. So it's sort of a mess out there in a sense. But I think awareness and taking a step back, you can start making decisions that are going to be healthy decisions. And I don't think it means abandoning church, but for some people, it does mean that, I think. And I think you need to do that. Ultimately, there are Christian communities that understand these things and wouldn't perpetuate the kinds of things that drive you away from whatever church you're used to. They're out there. It's just a matter of looking for them, you know? Yeah. Well, I think you and Esther kind of came together to this really beautiful point where it's this idea of emotional health and just being like an emotionally healthy person and having these open conversations where we're sort of all able to talk about things and heal together is this basis or this ground for having like a healthy Mm. relationship with our faith and relationship with god i mean i even think about the catechism dad when you mentioned that i actually felt like physically sick yeah and then i was thinking about it because it's like you know what is the chief end of man to glorify god and to enjoy him forever i could say that until my face falls off right Mm -hmm. because i memorized that my entire life but ever in a million years did i recite that and then have an open discussion with the person at the other end of the table about what that meant like mm-hmm. no like, i learned right. that in sunday school i then learned it as a middle schooler at a very classical christian school and like it was never a discussion like what does that even mean to glorify god and to enjoy him forever I, there's like this just lacking of discussion if you want to do the catechism great like do whatever but talk about it right. or at least you know, be willing to have those conversations i mean when you kind of isolate that one sentence glorify god and to enjoy him forever like 
that could be a really beautiful thing (laughs) if we can unpack that a little bit and talk about what that might mean or what some possibilities could be. Mm -hmm. But what Esther said was so true. Like when you find this healing in yourself, there's a connection that happens to yourself that then happens kind of to God and to the divine. And so I think there's a link there. Like there's a link to this generation being able to talk more about mental health issues and some of those struggles, there's a link to that and deconstruction, people sort of reworking their faith. Like they tie in together somehow. They're Mm -hmm. so closely related and we've separated them for so long. Don't feel, don't enjoy, don't be sad, don't mourn, don't any of those things, right? We've completely separated them. And now we're kind of moving them back together and it's creating this really odd messy shift but i think it's moving somewhere really cool and beautiful yeah it's sort of a corrective course i guess you know and um, you know going back to your point liz about the catechism i think you're absolutely right it's see what's the chief end of man to glorify god and enjoy him forever that's not a bad place to start to think about things or i think even better like the heidelberg catechism begins what is our only comfort in life and in death Mm -hmm. that we belong to our savior pretty Aww, much. That, and that's it goes like on. So sweet. That's a beautiful, what a wonderful thing to teach your kids, but then to talk about what that means and how that fleshes mm-hmm. out and mm-hmm. to be rooted in love. And again, not in performance. And I was a guest once, not super long ago, maybe about a year ago at an AA meeting. What you're talking about, Liz, is exactly what happened there. They basically read from the big book, they call it the A big book, which is sort of their Bible. And they have on the wall 12 steps. And the 11th step was the role of meditation and prayer in healing and recovery. And then it was opened up for discussion. Yeah. Oh my goodness gracious. I wanted to take notes with these people because these people have suffered and they're like, I don't get anything out of prayer. I like meditation better. And I want to jump up and say, that's fantastic. Those two things are not polar opposites. They're actually very related, but that's not my place to say that because I'm just a guest. But the thing is that they have such wisdom and depth in what they, and the pure honesty. I'm like, I remember just thinking to myself, why doesn't this happen in church? Right. Why do people get more help in AA than in church? Because they know they're wounded. Yes. That's just it. They know it. They're not on top of it, trying to protect a system that we know is right. Right. They know that they're in trouble. And aren't we all in trouble <laughs> in some real mm-hmm. sense? And honestly, it's it's so simple, but I think one of Paul's big themes is humility. Mm-hmm. Some people think Paul wasn't very humble, and he probably wasn't now and then, but we all make our mistakes, right? But Paul's big thing was humility and not pride. Humility changes how we do church. It changes how we look at the world around us. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually a cultish mentality that says we're right, everybody else is wrong. Instead of like, what can I learn from this about myself and my own life of faith and what it looks like? Hmm. Where do I need improvement? And Liz, I know that you probably never heard that in church ever. I didn't. Hmm. And I was in the same churches in the adult side of things. I never heard and and if it's ever and ever gets to something like, you know, we need to repent there's almost, there's an aggressiveness about it. There's like, <laughs> mm-hmm. there's right. a performance element to that. Right. 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 You're a sinner change, not you're broken and wounded come. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well put. So good. Right. Right. And I think we lose something of just, you know, what the Christian faith teaches 
as the very heart and essence of God, which is, I'm on your side. Mm. I'm not against you. Mm. I think the Christian faith has a tremendous history in thinking along those lines. It's just the particular iteration of Christianity that we've been a part of that has been encultured in very harmful ways, in my opinion. You know? Yeah, so good. Oh my goodness. <sighs> what a mess. And it is a mess, but it's a kind of a beautiful mess yeah. <laughs> in, in some ways. Uh, when you were talking just about one of the big things that's been missing, and Liz even said this, that it's like, here's the catechism or here's the 11th step in AA, but everybody got to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I know for me as a mom, my younger two kids were not compliant. And so they just like fought me on everything, which was great. I grew much more from the fighting than the compliance. I feel bad for the compliance kids because they just were taught to put up and shut up. Mm -hmm. And maybe we beat the compliance into them. I don't know. Or it came out in other ways, mm -hmm. you know, came out in anxiety. But I think like, right. wow, my one son who's third in the line of four, he just was like, no, I don't care what they said at church. Who cares? No. You know, he was the one that said, if Jesus was Jewish, did he believe in himself? This makes no sense. <laughs> at five years old, I was like, what? But I, he just challenged all the time. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, like he forced discussion. He forced yeah. it. And I think like, if that's just an open process around the dinner table, around the Sunday school table, around the AA meeting, whatever communities we find ourselves in, where it's not like I'm right and you're wrong. If we come with a posture of brokenness and humility and healing is our end goal, like that beginning of that catechism, what you said, wow, mm -hmm. that we belong to our savior, that we all belong no matter what, and that healing is our end goal. It changes everything. Yeah. Uh, if I could go back, I would want that to be the goal of our dinner table. Yeah. And my parenting. And to have a support system for that. Right. Which can be a formal gathering or it can right. be other families who are pretty much processing the same stuff. It's nice if it goes beyond simply the family, because exactly. you know, if, if you do this at home, but then you go to church, hey, listen, remember, Liz, don't talk about the stuff we talked about at the dinner table, okay, because <laughs> you're going to get everybody in trouble again, and we don't need that, right? So, but to have a place where these things are not issues with other families who are looking for the same thing, who are looking for that AA meeting. We talked about this in our pre-podcast. I supported Pete on his Patreon platform for the Bible for normal people, because I didn't have anywhere to talk. I couldn't go to church and I was an adult and I, I wasn't allowed to ask those questions. So you think about what that does to kids, but I needed that for myself. I needed to go into a safe place. I felt like it was my AA meeting, our book group. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can actually say, do you think hell exists? What about this part of the Bible? I don't like that. That makes no sense. I kind of made sure I had a personal support system outside of quote unquote, a formal church community, but how beautiful would it be if that did get incorporated into more of our formal church communities? I mean, Brian Zond says this, do it wherever you can at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, folks, you heard it here. Go to the Bible for normal people.com <laughs> forward slash Patreon. How dare you? <laughs> it did make a huge difference in my life, though. 
massive difference. I needed that for a whole couple of years till yeah. Liz and I cheated on you and we created our own book group, which is why <laughs> this podcast came about. And now you can support us on our Patreon. Yeah, I mean, I, I was never a part of the original book group, so there was no cheating. I was never a part of, I mean. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, of- that's true. I just cheated on Pete with Liz. <laughs> She was not cheating. (laughs) I just get grateful for wherever you can grab it. You have to grab it now until Mm -hmm. the systems at large change. And they are changing kind of from the inside out in many ways. But we're in the middle of it too, Esther. You know, the thing that's just that we're we're living in what they call that paradigm shift. Things are changing. And Phyllis Tickle, I think, said that every 500 years is this major upheaval. And the last one was like the Protestant Reformation, which was, oh, I don't know, about 500 years ago. So <laughs> we're sort of living again and 500 years before that, around 1000 you know, AD and things like that. And, and there seems to be some sort of rhythm, not that this is an ironclad teaching or anything, but we have been going through things, I think really the last 150 years, we've been sort of in this paradigm shift with just our increased understanding of just the history of humanity or psychology or various sciences or the world's gotten very small with travel and with you know information exchange and things like that it's bound to affect people and the fundamentalist reaction is to hunker down and to stay on the old path so to speak those are usually called fundamentalists and then you have progressives who say no we need to change And I've recently said that I actually like the word adaptive more than progressive, because that's Mm. very much a part of the history of the church and Judaism. As times change, you have to adapt your tradition to what's happening around you. Mm. And so one, you know, one piece of advice I would give, it's very abstract, but I would say, look out for those who understand adaptation is vital to a continued faith. Mm. It has to be. There is no Christianity without a history of adapting first to Judaism in light of Jesus, and then what's going on in Europe and America and all these things. It's changed a lot. We're a part of a a time now where I think things are changing very quickly, which makes a lot of people nervous. And I think we download that nervousness on our kids. Yeah, you know. So I'm going to ask you this last question. Okie dokie. Last questions is. You have two awesome grandchildren, Liz's kids. And if you were sitting with them five years from now, so they're a little bit older, when maybe they can start understanding this Bible, Jesus, God thing a little bit. So they're seven and nine. And if you could guarantee that they would listen to what you had to say, that's the key. And actually take it with them on their life's journey. What would be your message to them about God, faith, and themselves? I probably just buy them a toy or something and avoid <laughs> the whole topic. <laughs> what if they were hanging on your every word? Yeah, well, that'll What do happen. they call you, Pete? What do they call you? Uh, well, Grandpa. Grandpa. So, Grandpa. Yeah. Grandpa, share your wisdom with us. All your smartness. <laughs> this what is now fantasy have... land. When does yeah, that ever happen? Is, if but... you could live in this fantasy for a moment, tell us one thing that we can take away with us. In terms of the exact language I would use, give me a mulligan. I want to think about how to say it, but I would want to really try to create a context of God is love. That's hard enough. And then you have to actually show it, which is the hard part, right? But so God is love. 
And I would never use the word mystery, but the idea of it's okay to be curious and to ask questions because we're people and God's so much bigger. Although I, I don't know about that language either. It's like this big blob out there or something we call God. <laughs> but I would try to actually, I would want to communicate those things that the love of God, God is with you. God is on your side. God is in fact in you. Mm-hmm. And the, the nature of this faith is essentially to love God and to love others. Mm-hmm. And we get to figure out what that means and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And other stuff can be filtered in, brought in rather, at different times and places as they get older. Yeah, that's cool. You know? love that. I love that. That's probably what I would do. Just, I just said, I think a mouthful. I think what I just said is really hard. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. One of the coolest for me, as I've been on my deconstruction journey, some of the most healing things for me have just been like respectful parenting books and podcasts. And I specifically really love Janet Lansbury. She just, she kind of ushered me into this idea of just gentle and respectful parenting. But for me, the way that I'm learning to parent my children has been like the most healing for me and how I relate to God in this sort of like new era in this 500 year upheaval or whatever that we're in right now. I think young parents who are learning this sort of way of parenting that's becoming a little bit more mainstream and a little bit more popular right now, this idea of like gentle parenting and respectful parenting, we're the ones flipping the tables in some sense, in some of the ways that things were done. We were children because we're finding so much healing in how we're now relating to our children and then transferring that into God and us and divine and us. And so there's, I think this really cool healing happening with that. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Well, Pete, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, so it's always fun. I know. It's always something, is it not? And one day we will meet in real life, Pete. One day. Yes, we will. (laughs) Thanks again. Alrighty. See ya. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode on the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope that this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on both of our websites, EstherJoyGets.com and ElizabethPetters.com, as well as our brand new website, DeconstructingMamas.com. If you would like to support the podcast, please leave us a review where you listen and especially tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.